Welcome to the Hippocratic Hope Podcast. My name is Beth. I'm a tenacious and creative licensed clinical social worker with a desire to help medical and mental health professionals sustain their passion for healthcare. Join me and my co-host, KG. Hey, everybody. A psychiatric nurse practitioner with over 36 years of experience in psychiatry. Our show focuses on offering education and support, particularly as it relates to mental health for anyone whose day-to-day life is centered around caring for others. Okay. Testing. I think it's working now. (laughs) Okay. So today we're going to hear about mental health practitioners and how they diagnose and treat anxiety disorders. Uh, One of the main reasons people come to therapy is because they have anxiety. And the most interesting thing I find about anxiety is it is also the same reason why humans are still here on the earth. Anxiety keeps us alive, helps us function, and anxiety also can torture us. So KG, tell us a little bit more about like the, I don't know, the fancy DSM information about anxiety. Everyone experiences anxiety at times, but according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, anxiety disorders are the most common mental health conditions, and they affect 40 million Americans, about 19% of adults each year. Interestingly, of course, during 2020, that shot way up. Not a surprise. Yeah. Um, Anxiety can have a genetic component. I always like to say that I come from a long line of nervous wrecks. Right. Well, I mean, technically, we all come from a line of the most anxious adapters, right? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) They stayed alive. Yep. Yeah. So when I, when I have a client who's anxious, I will ask, you know, who are the worry warts in the family? Oh, it's my mom, my grandma. That's usually what it is. Mm-hmm. Anxiety also very commonly co-occurs with depression. Very rarely do we get somebody who walks through the door who just has anxiety and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, um, I think the old DSM was like, you had to have one or the other, but we really acknowledged that it's sometimes a chicken and egg situation. Was it the anxiety that caused the depression? Right. Was the depression what caused anxiety? Like it's kind of like a, I just know that you have a little bit of something if you got one of them. Right. Right. Well, and anxiety often begins in childhood as well. The CDC says that about 7% of kids three to 17 have diagnosed anxiety, which makes me wonder how many more are undiagnosed. Oh, absolutely. I specialize in anxiety and my son, I didn't recognize that he had uh, social anxiety till like a year into trying to figure out what was going on. And he's just petrified and his behaviors just look differently than what I see with adults. And yep, he's diagnosed and I'm like, oh, I see it now. <laughs> Oops. Well, it's like if you if you've always been anxious, it's what's normal to you. You don't know what it's like to live inside the head of somebody who doesn't have an anxiety issue. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to, to identify. Um, and we know that most people with mental health conditions are never diagnosed or treated. Mm. So, yeah. So anxiety also increases the risk of health complications, the, that the chronic high cortisol, it does damage in the body. It, it, it negatively impacts organs and the immune system. It's just bad for us. Also, it's often very closely associated with irritability. Often if I have a highly anxious client, they are often a highly irritable client as well. And I, I know for myself that, that that very much is hand in hand, the irritability with the anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, anxiety also can lead to memory problems. It's really hard to focus, to commit something to memory so that you can remember it later if you're feeling anxious and if you're kind of in fight, kind of fight or flight. And just like major depressive disorder, women are twice as likely as men to develop an anxiety disorder. So yay for us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
and exercise can help reduce the symptoms of anxiety. It's not going to fix everything, but it sure makes a lot of things better. So that's a, a great thing for most everybody. Yep. Um, you know, anxiety can be a good thing. It, we, as you mentioned, you know, it helps to keep you safe. It can alert you, you have your surroundings to get you to your car safely, or if you have a big presentation, it can mm -hmm. ensure that you prepare adequately so you can really perform well. Um, and it's also normal and appropriate. It's uh, a response to stressful events. And just like all the other mental health conditions, if the anxiety isn't impacting your ability to function or significantly reducing your quality of life, it probably doesn't rise to the level of a disorder in psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned earlier, there are many anxiety disorders, OCD, PTSD, panic disorder, social anxiety. But today we're going to talk about uh, generalized anxiety disorder, which is very, very common. Mm -hmm. So again, similar to major depressive disorder, we use the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5th edition text revision as our uh, to, to look at the criteria. And so when a patient, a new patient comes to me, this is kind of what we're looking at. And you have to meet these criteria. Again, they try to make it as objective as possible, but boy, there's a lot of room for sub subjectivity in this. So mm, yep. number one is excessive anxiety and worry occurring more days than not for at least six months about a number of events like school, work, money, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Number two, the individual finds it difficult to control the worry. Yeah. Number uh, number three, the anxiety and worry are associated with three or more of the following symptoms, with some of the symptoms having been present for more days than not for at least six months. But if you're a kid, you only need to have one of these items. So the six are restlessness or feeling keyed up or on edge, being easily fatigued, mm -hmm. difficulty concentrating or mind going blank, irritability, as we mentioned, mm -hmm. muscle tension, got a lot of people with tight jaws, a lot of people yeah. with jaw clenching, neck and shoulders, as well as sleep disturbance. So trouble falling or staying asleep. And then number four, the anxiety, worry, or physical symptoms cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning, like I said. And the disturbance is not attributable to the physiologic effects of a substance like meth or cocaine or, or, or a med that's prescribed to you or another medical condition such as hyperthyroidism. If you're hyperthyroid and you're untreated, your anxiety could go through the roof. Absolutely. And then the, the final um, is the disturbance is not better explained by another mental disorder. And so there's a whole bunch of ex um, examples, but uh, it's not anxiety or worrying about having a panic attack, which would be panic disorder, for example. Mm -hmm. So when the client first comes to me, I do the same, the same assessment. Do they meet the diagnostic uh, criteria for generalized anxiety disorder? What are their health related behaviors? As we discussed previously, what, what's your diet look like? What's your movement look like? How is your sleep? How is your social support? All of those things. Mm -hmm. And then the, the recommendations are, are generally a combination of things, cognitive, behavioral, and other thought therapies. I would say talk therapies. Is that, I mean, what's the best way to, best way to say that. I don't want to discount what that is. Um, Beth, what do you like? I mean, how do you like to, to have it referred, referred to? I think a lot of therapists don't like to be called, at least I don't like to be called a talk therapist because we're not just talking. Um, right. In right. fact, that's actually kind of like a bad habit that we can get in with our patients because we just talk. 
or we just listen and that actually isn't doing anything. It's more of like a behavioral therapist or we, you know, a therapist who provides um, behavioral intervention or you can just say counselor or therapist. Those are kind of like um, the words we prefer versus like talk therapy because while in like clinically that makes more sense, it's really not exactly what we do. And um, I think we focus more on behavior changes than just talking. Absolutely. I, and I don't want to diminish that. Oh, yeah, at all. no, but I mean, like, it is kind of, there's so many different words counselors, therapists, psychologists, clinical right. therapists. Like, just like, it's, yeah, there is talking involved, though, for sure. Right. And, and I, I think I say that to differentiate between the stuff that, that I'm going to recommend, such as, me, you know, medications. I differentiate yep, that yep. way. So, okay. yeah, the behavioral therapy is probably the easiest thing to see, like a okay. behavioral therapist. Yep. Okay. So, Recommending behavioral therapy, recommending improving some healthy behaviors, and, and then the option of using medications and mm-hmm. meds for, for generalized anxiety. Um, interestingly, the SSRIs and SNRIs, so like Prozac, Paxil, Cymbalta, that are all FDA approved as first line treatment for major depressive disorder are also first line um, approved treatment for anxiety disorders, such as generalized anxiety disorder. So we use those very same. And we, and it's really important to explain that to the, to the patient because people come to me and say, well, they put me on an antidepressant, but I wasn't depressed. And it's like, okay, so let's talk through that a little bit. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, Vibrid is something that can be used. So mm-hmm. similar to those. Boosburone or Boosbar, which is not an SSRI or SNRI, and it's given... That one is given most generally just for anxiety, not mm-hmm. for depression as well. It takes a while to kick in, but it's not a habit-forming medication. Um, it tends to be safer than than most things, or than a lot of things, I should say. The most common things I see with that is people sometimes get restless legs at night. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. and, some, and some people get a little bit kind of dizzy or lightheaded. So that's, those are a couple things to watch for with the boost bar. Okay. Clonidine is also given. Um, I mean, clonidine is given for a lot of things. High blood pressure. Great medication. Right? A great medication. We It's safe to even give to little kids. That was something, one of the things with my son is like, we literally couldn't get the kid to go to sleep. Like he would be up till like 11 because he w- couldn't settle himself down. And then he would be up again at two and like was ready to go. And we were like, no, we need, we, we need him to go to sleep. <laughs> um, and so clonidine was the medicine we gave um, him. And then even the research on it uh, shows that it helps improve certain, you know, whatever waves in your sleep pattern that actually improve your quality of sleep. So you're actually getting sleep that you need. I'm a big fan of clonidine. Absolutely. Have you ever heard it said that children's bedtimes are not about how tired the child is, but about how tired, how tired the child is making everyone else? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I was just like, some days I'm just like, just don't die. I close my eyes. (laughs) Oh man. Okay. So yeah, clonidine has a ton of uses and, and given at bedtime, it, it really does. It really can be helpful for sleep. Um, because it's given for hypertension, obviously it, it lowers blood pressure. And so that's some of the sometimes limiting. Sometimes people can't tolerate that. It it, mm-hmm. it sends their blood pressure too low. They get dizzy or lightheaded. Yep. But, but it's also used in ADHD and alcohol and opiate withdrawal and all sorts of other things. That's cool. As is propranolol, same kind of thing. That's also given for hypertension and, and some other things um, such as um, migraine, headache, prophylaxis. Mm-hmm. 
um, but that can be very helpful. Okay. Hydroxazine, which is an antihistamine, yep. similar to but not the same as Benadryl, that can be given several times a day. Again, you know, the it can make you a little bit sleepy, um, mm -hmm. and so that seems to be kind of the limiting uh, factor with the hydroxazine. Mm -hmm. Gabapentin or Neurontin, which is used for a ton of other things, such as seizures. Um, it can be given a few times a day as well. That does have a little bit more of an abuse potential. If you take enough of that, you kind of feel high and dizzy and, and it's kind of, kind of a pleasant little thing. So that's something to be aware of. And then there's the, our friends, the benzodiazepines, um, you know, Valium, Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin. I, I do not generally regular, you know, prescribe them on a regular scheduled basis for somebody with generalized anxiety disorder. I usually only do that for panic attacks. I always try to find a non-benzodiazepine uh, treatment that's effective. It's hard to get people off benzodiazepines once you've got them on because they work really well. They're like, well, I know this is what works for me. Why can't we just stay with that? Because, yeah, because it, it yeah. For lots of reasons. <laughs> lots of reasons. You can build a tolerance and it, it can, re so it can require increasing doses for the same effect. Well, it actually doesn't stop your panic attacks from occurring. Like if you want to live a life where you have panic attacks that you then have to take a pill to make go away. Great. There, it's fine for that. But your brain learns, oh, when this, whatever the trigger is for your panic attack occurs, the only way, the fastest way, because your brain likes to do things very efficiently, is to take a Xanax or one of those benzodiazepines. Right. But then your brain is unwilling to accept another option. And so you're always going to have the panic attacks because you can't, what your brain has to learn is, oh, that thing that caused the panic attack is not going to kill me. So I don't need to have panic attacks anymore. So you will always have panic attacks. And, you know, those SSRIs and SNRIs can really get you to the point where you're not having them anymore. If, if, yeah. if, you're, if you're lucky, if you can find the right medication, um, that can yeah. make all the difference in the world. Yeah. So like that would be one of those things too. Like if we have a mutual patient who's having a panic attacks and you were like, get, just so they can function, right? Because panic attacks can be like something that you can't function with. And I get right. for a short term, I need you not to like lose your job and I need you to right. work. But as far as like being able to overcome that from a therapeutic perspective, the benzodiazepine stops the system that, that is supposed to be helping you. And therefore I can't ever help you bring resolution to that problem unless you remove the benzodiazepine and allow the panic attack to happen so that we can actually teach your body that it will be okay. And so what I love about, you know, providers like you is I can work with the patient and you to try to start reducing that. Right. So that we can actually fix the problem rather than just band-aiding it. But I mean, I, it's a very appropriate. Let's say you're afraid to get on the airplane. You don't have time to come see me for six weeks. Give them the benzo so they can get on the plane and go to their sister's wedding. Or right. I had a patient who needed to go into like a hyperbaric chamber and they were like very claustrophobic. And I was like, they were like, come help. And I'm like, just give them some Ativan or something good. Like, just, <laughs> we don't, we don't need to like, it's six times that they need to do this. Let's, it, and it was really, it was really hard to get through it. And um, they didn't necessarily have the time to do that. So like, right. let's just, it's fine. Let's do it. Right. Well, and they can also, it can cause issues with cognitive functioning. There's an increased risk of falls. It's just, and it's not FDA approved for long-term use. And people will come to me and they're like, well, I've been on it a long time. And I know people who've been on it forever. And I'm like, I 
I understand that, but, but we need to find something that's um, a little less problematic for, for longer term use for you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then if, if the anxiety is in, so is associated with insomnia, mirtazapine, which is Remeron and Trazodone and Doxepin can all be given at bedtime. They help the sleep, but they're also antidepressants that can help with um, anxiety as well. Nice. So nice. those are primarily the medications that I normally use. And I know everybody um, prescribes differently. Um, yeah. So talk to me about your specialty. Yeah, no. And I, again, I'm a big fan of combining the medicine with therapy. I find that oftentimes the medicine, well, it doesn't always necessarily address the core issue that maybe got the anxiety from that family dynamics out of control in the first place. It just gives you more bandwidth to tolerate it, which is often something that we just need. I, I'm just really thankful for those medicines because, you know, I have an anxiety disorder too. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So usually though, um, I think I've mentioned before, I love working with anxiety disorders. I would consider myself, I specialize in a lot of different anxiety disorders. The the most common anxiety disorder probably known is social anxiety, which makes sense, right? Because if we don't fit in, then our little caveman brain is like, oh, but then we're going to be all alone in this world by ourselves. So social anxiety is going to always be one of the things that the brain brings up to say, hey, are we doing this right? Because we want to be part of the group. So usually when people come in for any type of anxiety, we do a little bit of talking about how anxiety in itself is there to to help you, to alert you to what's important to you, because you're not going to worry about things that you don't care about. Your job is just to decide that by caring about that thing, how are you going to go out problem solving? And then when you problem solve it, you need to stop. That you don't need to keep replaying it over and over. So for instance, if we were back in like a a caveman day, it is really good to ruminate on how you survived the tiger attack, right? You need Mm -hmm. to go over and over that. Yes. But there's so much information and and things to worry about with, um, with life and particularly the United States that we sometimes keep going over and and over it and over it. And then our brain, our brain creates the habit and it doesn't stop going over it. And then that's where I truly believe the disorders come in and then make us feel insane, honestly, and, and very miserable and usually pull us away from who we want to be. So that's the first thing we understand is that there's this parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system, which is your anxiety trigger. And so the sympathetic nervous system is the the fight, flight, or freeze. And I do always want to emphasize that even freezing is a positive coping like mechanism for for fear. Like freezing sometimes keeps you alive. Um, so is fighting. So is fighting. So the sympathetic nervous system is great. Again, it's the turning on of that system to pump your heart, pulls blood flow from your organs. That's sometimes why you get nauseous and feel kind of sick to your stomach. Because if you, again, were being attacked by a tiger, it would be nice that if they scratched your tummy, your vital organs have less blood flow in them. Uh, That's why sometimes your skin feels a little cold because we are just wanting to pump blood and air to the lungs so that we can run away or we have enough to fight for a slight burst. What can happen though is our thoughts and our brain can also trigger a sympathetic response and then it becomes like a perpetual state. So we never really get into what we call the parasympathetic system, which is the one that brings us down into like a homeostasis 
type anti-anxiety state, which is where I think humans in general feel more comfortable. They feel safe in that state. So what we look at is what are you behaving towards the symptoms of anxiety? Like what are you doing to, to respond to those symptoms? Are you keeping and going over lists over and over? Are you ignoring what you're worried about? Are you um, being unflexible with the ways you're trying to protect yourself? And with generalized anxiety, you know, I kind of distinguish generalized anxiety, in my opinion, can be just as bad as OCD. And OCD is considered one of the, you know, the major, major problematic um, mental health disorders. But I find generalized anxiety is more of just this worrying and ruminating without doing any problem solving and moving on. Like, oh, I was attacked by the tiger. The big pokey stick um, worked to stab it in the eye. Great. I'm going to get me a stick. That is how we should resolve with the ruminating. With generalized anxiety, I think what happens is, is we just like a stick and maybe something else might be good. Oh, okay. So I'll just make sure. I just really don't want that to happen. So I'll just always carry a stick and a bat and a, and a knife. And then, ooh, oh, also my toes feel weird. Maybe my toes, something's wrong with my toes. And I need to leave like it's just constant worrying without truly saying yep I'm going to stop ruminating and I'm going to make a plan and hopefully that plan will work versus like OCD where it's I'm going to completely just avoid all the tigers by sitting in this tree and never coming down and then I'll constantly check to make sure there's no tigers climbing up the tree so we really start to look at how you're acting towards the anxiety and then come up with awareness of what particular usually thoughts or situations cause the anxiety, like maybe a social situation. And then we look at our willingness to maybe shift our behavior um, because most of the time it's not helping us be who we want to be. And while we're really worried and we're cleaning our house frantically before our mother-in-law comes over, it's not actually helping us um, be nice to our kids and be the mom we want to be to the kids. So, um, yeah, we, we, we look at those things when it comes to like being a clinician, it's, oh my gosh, all my stuff is on my plate and, and, and I have all these things and all these deadlines and, oh, and we just worry versus, okay, I'm going to have to be uncomfortable and maybe set a boundary. I'm going to maybe have to disappoint someone, but I'm going to have to make a plan. And so for me, if you don't, if you're just worrying and you're angry and you're irritable and you're uncomfortable, you're anxious, right? Like you're anxious because there's something uncomfortable going on inside of you and your body is activating that sympathetic nervous system. And so if you stay that way and you've noticed it's kind of gone on more than one day, you're not problem solving. You're saying maybe an argument of how it should be, but you're not problem solving. And you're not moving beyond and tolerating the uncertainty because no plan no plan is certain. It's just, we need to decide how we're going to behave and then move forward or it'll just keep coming back. And then we have to learn to, when our brain, which is very, very good at telling us there might be something wrong, brings it back up again. We say, no brain, we're not doing that. So that your neurological pathways learn that we're not going to ruminate more than a couple times. We're done. Have you ever, have you ever heard the Elizabeth Gilbert thing where she talks about, you know, thank you anxiety for trying to keep me safe. I appreciate you can, you can ride along in the car, but you're not going to drive. Yeah, that is definitely how it, how it works. <laughs> like it's okay. So I'm going to have this anxiety, but I'm, but I'm going to have to figure out how to live with it. And that in itself allows the brain to really accept the sinking ship and then look at problem solving and then look at what we then move to is acceptance. Whereas, oh, it's coming in the car with me. Okay. Well now I just know how I need to drive the car with anxiety in the car with me. 
versus, you know, just worrying that it's there and trying to make it go away. Because the reality is I've never been able to make anxiety disappear from my life. And if I did, I'd probably die because then I wouldn't be afraid of anything. (laughs) One of the exercises is to think about the anxious thought and ask yourself if that thought was a movie, would I like that part? And would that part of the movie be helpful for what I'm dealing with right now? There's so many people coming in. I'm never going to get out of here on time or I'm not going to be able to get my notes done tonight and then I'll be behind and then I'll be irritated and you're going to do this catastrophe thinking. It's, okay, is this part of the movie? Is this, is, I mean, am I enjoying this part of the movie? Is, are these words, if they were running across the screen as a narrative, is this, is this closed captioning helpful for me? Is, is this helping me get the day done or is it just making me feel uncomfortable? just like a scary part in a movie, you might close your eyes or cover your ears. It's still there, but you're not going to deal with it. And so sometimes it's really cool to just ask yourself, is this something that I really want to think about? It absolutely could be true. Absolutely. But it doesn't necessarily need to be addressed and there's nothing to do. It doesn't need to be solved at that point. So for instance, I have a lot of patients. I'm not going to get my notes done on time and I'm going to be late. Okay, that that feels more attainable. That feels a little bit more um, doable versus, and then I can't, and then this, and then that. You you really got to stop. You got to stop yourself. And so that's usually one of the first skills is to increase your ability to notice when you're participating or watching a movie and it's not helpful for you. So you stop, literally stop. Oh, I'm doing that thing. And then you get to ask yourself if solving or fixing or even interacting with this worry is helpful in the moment. I like that. And usually the answer is no, but sometimes it's yes. And notice if you're just trying to make a choice because it's uncomfortable that it's not solved or that you've, um, or if you've already made a plan. One of the biggest things with generalized anxietyers is just the focus on the anxiety and like not the, the, um, the uncomfortable of the fact that there's not a choice to be made right now. Like, it's like, I'm worried about this and I'm worried about my mom and my parents are getting older and my company was just bought by another thing. And then, you know, the, whatever came out with this, um, those, those aren't decisions we need to make right now. Is that, do you ever recommend the serenity prayer? I do not usually recommend the serenity prayer, prayer, um, but I love, um, referencing similar, um, kind of like mantras, mm-hmm. which would be just like. I will breathe. I have a, I have a little post-it here on our little like link, but it was, I will breathe. I will think of a solution. I will not let my worry control me. I will not let me uh, stress break me. I will not let me stress break me. I will simply breathe and it will be okay because I don't quit. Mm. And so oftentimes um, like these little mantras, these little things that someone can come up with, or I ask them, what would you tell you're, like if you were a friend, what would you tell your friend? And then we we make that a mantra just to ground ourselves in the fact that I don't need, I do have a choice. Well, I may not have a choice that my brain is worried about this because it's important to me. I do have a choice on how I respond to this always. That choice might make me uncomfortable still, but I still have a choice. And when your brain knows it has a choice, it feels better. One of the things I often tell my patients, and I may say this every podcast is, You can't always make it better, but you can always make it worse. (laughs) Yes. Yes, you can. 
So in oftentimes the generalized anxiety comes from us trying to solve problems that don't have fixes, us trying to solve problems that don't need to be solved, or us worrying about something without trying to problem solve it because we're uncomfortable, because the experience that we might have to endure to address that anxiety is kind of intolerable to us. So the next part of kind of the anxiety treatment is learning to notice it, sit with it, describe it, describe how what thoughts are with it, describe what sensations are with it, and then keep noticing what it's like. One of the exercises would be, um, we call it a choice point, and we ask people to picture the fear the moment, the, the moment it could come true or it did come true, what would they feel? And we ask them to describe it. Like, what would their body feel? And sometimes they say tightness in their chest, vibrating, or they feel their man, mind goes blank and they feel frozen. And then I ask them to rate that. Well, how, how, how willing are you to, to, to hold that? Or how difficult is it to hold? 10 being the hardest, one being the easiest. And it's usually an eight, nine, or 10. And I'm like, okay, and so as we sit here together and then I will repeat back what they described and your chest is tight and you're, and you're feeling just sort of like paralyzed and blank in the midst of all of this, what thoughts do you notice coming up for you? And they may say that I'm a failure or that I shouldn't be so worried about this, but I can't make myself stop or that um, whatever. And I'll, be, and I'll repeat it back to them because, again, we want to sit with all that's there and I need to be comfortable with it too. So I repeat back. So you feel like this isn't capable of um, resolving itself and that for some reason, even though you've never experienced this before, you should do it better. Okay. Well, how distressful is that to you? And when you think of when we first started, how distressful is it now? All of the sensations and the thoughts. And I ask them to rate it. Sometimes it goes up. Sometimes it goes down. And then we talk about how they wished they could respond to this particular emotion. So KG, I would ask you something like, how would you wish you could respond when you notice that um, you're behind on your notes and everybody else seems to be going faster? I would have just asked you. What do you think you would have said when we were talking about that original kind of problem you had brought up? Probably, I mean, to start out with just to take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For, me, for me, that's always a nice, that's always a nice uh, a way to start. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's a, it's a good one. Great. So I'd be like, okay, so you were to take a deep breath. And when you think of taking a deep breath in that setting, do you feel like that would be helpful in, in, in moving you to who you wanted to be in that moment? That would be the, I think that would be the start for me, but then also, then also kind of cognitively just, you know, you know, well, one of the things that I sometimes do is, you know, how, how big of a, an issue, you know, a year from now, is this mm -hmm. going to be how if important it's some perspective? It's kind of like putting it up on that TV screen. Is this going to be as important to me when I have some space from it? That's right. awesome. Yeah. What was another thing we teach people is give it some space, figure out how to get it in so you can see it. And then, so you know what to do with it, get some space from it so you can observe it clearer. And then, um, yeah. And then we would look at that and I would be like, okay. And if you did that, do you feel like, how, what do you feel like now? And most of the time people talk about how they actually are surprised that their stress level went down in the matter of maybe 10 minutes. And so it's proof that actually running towards that anxiety and the fear and not avoiding it anymore 
actually helps the body resolve the situation. And it's a really cool way of helping them figure out what they want to do. Because oftentimes I don't need to say, hey, would you want to do this? It's just, what do you want to do in this situation? And then they figure out what it is and they feel better. I hear that acceptance and commitment uh, therapy and everything that you talk about. It's, I know, I'm so it's sorry. there. It's, no, you don't need to be sorry. It's great. But it's, 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 it's such a strong theme and it's great. I really like not running away from it, but in, in, in embracing it, feeling it, allowing it to be. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm absolutely, um, I'm, I'm like, I'm like, I sometimes feel like I'm like, can I can like, though I feel like like one of those converted to some sort of like special group and I can't talk about anything else, but it was really life changing. And I just find that it works so well for people. So I'm, I'm big in it. One of the other things is a practical thing. I talked about the sympathetic and the parasympathetic um, nervous system. And one of the things I make people do in session, because we all know we should do this if you're any type of like medical clinician or working in with people, you know that breathing in itself is a way to help activate your parasympathetic, which is that one that brings you down and makes you calmer and makes you feel a little more homeostasis. Breathing is like literally one of the linchpins for that. And what I like to teach people is I, you and I both know deep breathing will work. I mean, we even have this like saying, like, just take a deep breath, which usually makes you more mad, but it is exactly what you need. So we practice and I start with the box breathing. And so it's breathing in for four, holding for four and breathing out. And so while we are, no one can see me, I'm still going to do it just so people um, listening, if you want, you can try this. So try to keep your hand on your diaphragm, which is that space right above um, stomach area and right below your like kind of like I call it the breastbone. And when you breathe in, you kind of want it to come out and you want to breathe for four seconds, not go one, two, three, four. It's breathing slowly in and then we're going to hold. So I'm going to breathe in. Holding two, three, four, and I'm going to breathe out through my mouth. I'm going to do it again. Breathe in. Hold. One, two, three, four. Breathe out. And if we do that together, you're more likely to when you're stressed and you begin to notice that you've sort of spun off into something else, you can find your feet is what I always tell people. Breathing, if you want to practice that and do that now, you're more likely to do it later when you need it. And so the protocol would be to do three sets of that every day or to do um, 10 sets of that. But I find people aren't going to do 10. So just do three. So. And after you let the breath out, it's you're holding that for four more seconds as well, correct? You are. I actually, that's the technique that's like literal. Most people um, in the matter of like switching that breath to like transitioning to what they're doing next it takes about four seconds. So I don't usually count that. But any of the breathing apps or the meditation app that you have or like the Calm or the Insight Timer, all of those um apps that you have, those, those have like a breathing timer on them and they usually all do box breathing. It doesn't really matter how long you count from what I've learned from a lot of my anxiety training, the protocols, there's like a four, seven, eight breathing where you breathe in for four, hold for seven, breathe out for eight. It's more or less, I just need you to slow your breathing down. Yep. And that is going to help you 
find your feet, but it does take practice for you to become reliant on that in a time. So it's good to just practice. Like I just pick in the morning, I'm going to do three sets for two weeks and see what happens. It's such a good idea because at the, the time that you most need the skill is the time it's hardest to do the skill. Absolutely. Like, yeah, totally. You got to practice these things because it's not just about like, practice. It's about creating neurological pathways. Your brain is going to go to the thing that it feels is the most effective and the fastest. So deep breathing, if you haven't practiced it, the brain hasn't learned that. It gets the concept, but it wants data and it has no data unless you give it data. So I always make people start in session with me and breathe. Um, Then we try to do it at home and I have them reflect on if they felt it was helpful. Some people it's not helpful. So we have to find a different type of relaxation technique or breathing technique or mindfulness technique, but uh, breathing's usually about eight, 98% of the people are okay with breathing and or haven't breathed in a long time. <laughs> uh, so, and usually I'm going to tell you if I, I usually, when I have students, we start with an anxiety. I usually give them an generalized anxiety case, 12 sessions and the person's discharged. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, it's great condition. People get better really quickly if we just get them engaged. And and generalized anxiety can be really life impacting and really take you away from all the things you really want to be because you're just so worried about not being those things. I had a patient one time that I, I, I'm pretty sure I pr- prescribed Paxil. I don't know why I remember that, but she came back to me and she said, uh, she came back, I don't know, probably five weeks later and she said, shouldn't I be more worried? <laughs> She had no concept of what it was like to not worry. And then she was going to worry about the fact that she was not worried about. It was enough. It was so great. <laughs> I love that too. You're like, yeah. And that's what I tell people. It's, it doesn't necessarily take your worry away, but it like goes from a hundred percent worrying all the time hard down to like maybe 50 or 60. And then you have some bandwidth to then actually access your brain. It's great though, because some people are really able to go off the medication once they learn the skills, practice the skills, and, and, and it's like off off the meds they go and that, that they can be successful if they're willing to do the work. Absolutely. Absolutely. You do the work and it's kind of like the first time you've ever had it. Give it six months to a year. Do your skills. Okay, you're good. Have a great day. <laughs> um, it's really cool to see. I love that. Awesome. Well, I think that's all for, um, for generalized anxiety for now, right? I think so. And, and next up is looks like social anxiety disorder. Woohoo! <laughs> Sounds like you have a lot to say about that. I'm looking of forward to it. Of course I do. Of course I do. <laughs> um, yeah. And that one's a fun one to treat too. And uh, I think most people can relate. So, all right. All right. Well, don't forget to subscribe and like us and thumbs up us on all of our social uh, accounts and podcast accounts. I think we're on almost everything. So, uh, yeah, that'll be it. So I'll see you later, friends. Later, Gators. By listening to this podcast or reading our blog, you agree not to use the information provided as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall Kathleen Langdon, Elizabeth Farrell, or any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog be responsible for damages arising from the use of the information from this podcast or blog.